Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Sarah House has no idea what we're talking about. She'll save us with Wells Fargo, their senior economist. Sarah, this is an exceptional statement and report for Jerome Powell. I think this is a, another report for a second month in a row that does give a lot of credence to that transitory debate. So I think we still see some quite a bit of pressure coming through the pipeline. If you look at what's happening, both in terms of supply change on the good side, what's happening with labor and, and wages. But I think what we're seeing is that most eye-popping rate of inflation we saw this spring is coming off the boil. And I do think that gives the Fed a, a little bit more time to await some progress in the labor market. D- d- I look, Sarah, at the labor market and it ties in. How does this inflation report tie in to wage inflation? Are they linked? Well, I think where you're seeing some of the some of the give back in things like used cars prices, I think that is somewhat divorced from what we're actually seeing in the labor market. So even as we did see a little bit of softening in, in the rate of food inflation, we're still seeing quite a bit of pressure in the restaurant sector, even in in grocery stores. And I think if you look at the the run rate there in, in terms of the monthly print, you're, you're still seeing strong numbers. And so I think um, we are seeing some of that wage pressure begin to, to filter through. And I think in many areas, it's it's just beginning to start, particularly in, in the service side, where it does take longer to show up in the inflation numbers. What kind of number do you think would make the Fed comfortable at the turn of the year, Sarah? What do you think they need to see? Does a three-handle get it done? Does it give them the comfort to say, yes, it's transitory, let's stick with this? I think it's more about the numbers you're seeing in, in inflation expectations. So, yes, we had a very hot consumer inflation expectations number coming from the New York Fed yesterday. But if you look at the Fed's preferred measure, that common inflation index, it's still well within its historic range. So that's taking into account what's happening in tips markets, what's happening with the, the Michigan numbers. And while you've seen inflation expectations pick up, they're still at levels that are overall consistent with the, the Fed's with the Fed's target. And so I think that by them time, no matter what you're seeing in terms of the core PC deflate or even or headline inflation at the end of the year. So if you're just tuning in on radio on TV, it's downside surprise time on the inflation print. Team transitory getting a win here, scoring a goal. Futures positive four tenths of one percent on the S&P, advancing their 17 points on the S&P. Yields not doing much off the back of this number. Lisa, this comes down to one thing now. Retail sales print, then it's on to the Fed next week. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple ways to read this. On one hand, it could be transitory. The Fed's getting what they want. On the other hand, this could be uh, that perhaps the economy is softening more than expected at a time when we have a prolonged pandemic. Sarah, can you weigh in on what this means if the Fed is not getting what they want, if you don't see necessarily material labor market improvement like we didn't necessarily with a disappointing previous report? What do they do? Do they just keep printing money? I mean, do they just keep buying bonds or do they have to change uh, their guidance in an additional way? I think they you continue to see the status quo. So I think you just get taper, the taper gets pushed off further. Um, so I think this print suggests that may, maybe tips the scales a little bit more in favor of December rather than a, a November announcement. But I think they they keep the the current policy in place for a little bit longer. You know, I think it's important to remember that while yes, we did get a disappointing employment report in August, we're still adding jobs. You're still seeing the unemployment rate decline. You're still seeing at least some movement in terms terms 
of labor force participation and and the supply, even if it is slow. But cumulatively, cumulatively, you're still seeing things move in in the right direction. You are getting closer to to the Fed's um, to the Fed's goals. It's just maybe taking a little bit longer, and so that's going to have them keep policy in place longer. When we look forward to that retail sales figure later in the week, Sarah, what is the consumer able to do at this point, given the roll off of some of the stimulus checks and the fact that people still are not necessarily getting back into a labor market still hobbled in parts by COVID? Right. So I think we're going to see a pretty weak number um, when it comes to the retail sales. Part of that has to do with the fact of, of what we're seeing in terms of autos, just where how much we saw sales plummet. But I think if you look at the overall position of, of consumers, so we are seeing it weaken a little bit. So balance sheets are still good. You still have excess savings. But given the, the run rate of inflation of, of late, even with today's softer number, it's whittling away at, at those savings. And so when you factor in also the unemployment benefits rolling off, that that buying power of consumers is weakening. And so that does suggest that you are at least getting somewhat closer to the supply and demand uh, imbalance coming coming better aligned. But it's going to take some time. Sarah, let me talk the unspeakable here, which I believe I haven't heard come up. What if this is a Fed? I'm looking here, folks, at the wonderful FOMC function on the Bloomberg. What if this is a Fed that's not September, not December? but has to stagger to the decision tree of January 26th of next year. What does it signal if they have to wait, wait, wait? Well, I think it suggests that to some extent the virus is still very much in, in control. So I don't think it's completely out of um, out of the realm of possibility that even as we're seeing Delta cases level off, you get another wave come come the winter. And so I think it suggests that you know, this is not the necessarily the the rapid immediate rebound a lot of folks were looking for earlier earlier this spring. But there's still a lot to to work through, both in terms of the virus. There's still a lot of frictions in the economy, whether it's to the labor market. Or, or supply chains, and those are going to take some time to work out. And so the Fed might might have to to hold uh, hold course for a, for somewhat longer. Sarah, thank you. Always good to hear from you, Sarah House, Wells Fargo Security Senior Economist. Also associated with us is Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, thank you so much for joining. I love your essay this week on housing. We need a new dishwasher. The sump pump has been used in Hurricane Ida. I love home ownership. Is it worth it? You got to live somewhere, right? And as someone who's lived in rentals and owned condos and my own house, it's nice not to live in a off-white, no change to any of the living circumstances. The, The old joke is no one washes a rented car Nobody improves a rented apartment. So if you want an updated kitchen, if you want to paint your house a different color or put in new carpet or stuff, ownership is how you manage to do that. A lot of the metrics that show that real estate is a bad investment kind of ignore the fact that as an owner occupier, you got to live somewhere. And that's where- Homeowners okay. do well. But, you know, I mean, the home renovation, Abramowitz did a renovation. It was a quarter of a million dollars. But, you know, Barry, when you when you look at home ownership, what's the actual a nominal or real return of home ownership versus owning the Standard & Poor's 500? In real terms, it's probably flat to negative. Once you work in 
you got to pay taxes. There's a ton of maintenance and upkeep. Um, uh, net relative to inflation, you're lucky if it's a break, even if not worse. But it keeps coming back to what you pay is a key issue. And the thing to remember is if you're putting 10% down and you're not buying the property outright, um, it's a, there's a lot of leverage in that. Mm-hmm. And so those return characteristics are different than, let's say, Blackstone running around and buying up multifamily units and farmland and everything else. Tom, just to be very clear, the quarter million dollar renovation really accounts for basically putting in a new divider for my silverware. So it's not exactly the same scale. I will just say that just to set the scale straight. (laughs) Barry, uh, just sort of follow on, though, with this idea. We started talking about banks. We moved to the real estate market, a pivotal moment for urban areas as we try to get back to the office at a time where the variant is really delaying a lot of those plans to get back to the office. How significant is it the longer that some of these delays go on for property values in urban centers? So so it's that's a really complex question. And I'll give you like a 30,000 foot view. 2019, when you look around places like San Francisco and Manhattan, there's a ton of new office space that has gone up to meet the pre-pandemic demand. Suddenly, the pandemic has taught us hey, we've really been inefficient in how we use our time, both going to the office, commuting, et cetera. And so it appears that there's now an excess of office space and a shortage of, I don't even want to say affordable housing, just reasonably priced housing in in major cities. And if you remember, we we just went through the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Post 9-11, Lower Manhattan converted Uh, to a very residential area, lots and lots of office buildings converted. I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that take place over the next couple of years in major urban centers to adjust that that imbalance between supply and demand for both too much office space and too little residential space. So going forward, are you going back to the office? I know we talked a lot about this back in the day, and I'm wondering, given your read on the breadth of Wall Street in terms of what they're doing, where they are working for, what's the zeitgeist right now on that front? So a handful of companies originally had September 15th as their target. A bunch has been pushed back to October 15th. I've been trying to get into the city at least once a week, um, and as has all my colleagues in the office. Um, and now the, there's a chicken and egg issue in that a lot of mass transit has been running on weekend schedules, not normal peak commute schedules. I think a bunch of that, the Long Island Railroad, uh, Metro North, I think that returns back to its normal schedule or it was scheduled to September 15th. So once you can, I was at a conference yesterday at the Javits Center at the Salt Conference, and on the way home yesterday at 2.30, it was bumper-to-bumper traffic in a car. And I think that's because people aren't comfortable either riding the trains or they're just running too infrequently. Once things get back to normal on the commuter rails and other forms of mass transit, you're going to start to see people move back into the office a little more regularly. Barry, thank you. How was the SALT conference? Uh, it was interesting. I sat down with Steve Cohen of Point72 and, and Dimitri uh, Balasanis, uh, Mike uh, Rockefeller of um, Woodbine and Alana Good. Um, Goldstein. Fascinating, fascinating conversation. Yeah. Nobody cares. What did Cohen say about the Mets? <laughs> He's having a lot of fun with the team. He's excited about uh, upcoming changes, and he thinks they are going to be a contender 
sooner rather than later. It was really uh, interesting discussion. What was fascinating about walking around the event with him is people stopping him to talk about the Mets. No one wants to talk about exactly. That's why they buy the teams. Thirty percent a year. They want to talk about yeah, exactly. the baseball team. I mean, Barry, when you buy the Knicks, it'll be the same way. Barry Redholtz, thank you so much. Bloomberg Opinion <laughs> at Columnist. This is a really, really important conversation. Is my head, your head, everybody else has had swirls on the pandemic. Amish Adalja has been extremely competent in engaging the debate worldwide over a perfect solution to pandemic to virology. He is with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and joins us right now. Dr. Adelja, I was thunderstruck that Auckland looks for perfection. They have 33 new cases, 1.7 million people. And I'm going to dazzle you now, Amish. Two times 10 to the minus 6%. Scientific notation we got to go to, folks. It's a teensy-weensy amount that's ill. How do you respond to their attempt to be perfect? I don't think it's the right approach. I think that this is something that's popular in New Zealand, but it doesn't really justify what they do. Their level three and level four lockdowns are really borrowing from the Chinese playbook. And I don't think that they're, the, the way that they're so blanket, they they pick up so many activities that aren't leading to spread, that don't allow people to do things in a safer manner. For example, go outside or not have to wear a mask when they're outside, or even be able to get takeout dining when they're under level four uh, lockdown. So I don't necessarily think what they've done is correct, but they are vociferous defenders of it, as I found out when you criticize them. But it, it, it is something that I think really needs to be examined because it's not sustainable. And they have about 30% of their population fully vaccinated. That's, that's not a lot. Their rates are going up. But I don't think we need to do this in the in the post-vaccine era. And also, we've got rapid tests. We've got so much technology to allow people to do things safely that this abstinence-only approach, even if it's popular, uh, shouldn't be what's done and, and definitely shouldn't be enforced with, with police the way they do in New Zealand. I don't sense it in America, but maybe I'm uninformed. Do we have elements of New Zealand from sea to shining sea? We don't. We've had some aspects of it. For example, when you look at California, which had a very strict uh, restriction on indoor dining or in outdoor dining as well. And you still saw cases really going up in California because what that was doing, that abstinence only approach in California was driving behavior underground where it was more risky. And I think the lesson from this pandemic is that harm reduction, something that we do with HIV, with sexually transmitted infections, that's the way we want to approach public health with voluntary means, trying to give people tools to make better risk calculations, knowing we're never going to get cases to zero, that there's going to be a baseline number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, but just trying to keep our hospitals from going into crisis. And I think we should have been doing that back from January of 2020. And I don't think that the U.S. is the good example here. I think they're both false alternatives, New Zealand and the United States. And there is a better way, uh, a way like countries like Taiwan follow. Dr. Dalja, in the meantime, the debate over booster shots continues to heat up and just on a rival network. Dr. Fauci has been speaking and he's saying that he does expect the FDA to decide to give boosters Meanwhile, several FDA members have resigned, saying that it's unnecessary or perhaps scientifically unbacked. Where do you fit into this uh, in terms of the need or lack thereof of boosters? To me, the threshold for needing a booster would to have be someone that's fully vaccinated, getting a breakthrough infection that lands them in the hospital. That's just not happening. There's definitely probably going to be some need 
for boosters down the road. But I don't think it's going to be on September 20th or six months or eight months post your second dose. It's something we need to be proactive about. But I don't think we're ready to pull the trigger for healthy people. There may be an argument to be made for the elderly people in nursing homes, but that also needs to be driven by clinical data, not just looking at antibody levels coming down, but actually seeing do people get severe infections this, this many months out from their vaccination? And does a third dose not only boost their antibodies, but does it actually protect them against that? So we want clinical data. We want this to be driven by the usual process of the CDC, the FDA, and all of that data being published so that people can actually look through it and sift through it, not something that's, get, that's primarily being announced by the White House that's, that's triggering people at the FDA to announce their retirement and to write in medical journals opposing it. Dr. Adelja, what's the potential concern here about giving boosters? Is there any scientific evidence of harm or that it doesn't really uh, affect things at all? or is it simply a matter of distribution of vaccine and trying to get unvaccinated vaccinated throughout the world as quickly as possible? There's probably not a major harm signal, but again, if you read what the FDA, the, the departing FDA members wrote, they're worried about side effects that might occur if that third dose is too close to the second dose or, or what that might do to the reactogenicity of the vaccine. But again, this is something that can be solved and answered with clinical data, just to look and see what happens to people who get a third dose. And that's what's really missing, or at least hasn't been presented publicly yet. And that's why I think that you've seen such a, a backlash against this plan from the infectious disease community with a few, few notable exceptions. But in general, most of us don't think for healthy people that we're ready to, to recommend boosters in the absence of data. And it's important to remember what's happening in the United States with, with the number of hospitalizations and worries about crisis in places like Idaho and Kentucky. That's not going to be solved by third doses. It's first and second doses that solve that. And I think that's where the focus needs to be. And I, I think that it, we can prepare for boosters, get ready, but make sure that we do this right so that people have confidence that the process actually was scientifically driven and, and not driven by uh, any other considerations. Doctor, thank you for your time this morning. As always, Dr. Emma Shadalji there of Johns Hopkins Center for House Security, the senior scholar. On the equity market, Christopher Grisanti joins us right now with MAI at Capital. Usually I'd start with a general phrase, Chris, but I know you're going to be hanging on every word at 1 p.m. on Apple. Can you own Apple here? You've been a long-term uh, affiliate of Apple. Can you go long Apple right now? Sure, Tom. I think if you're a long-term investor, you know, there's, there's hardly a better uh, run company, hardly a better company with market position. Having said that, uh, we, we don't currently own Apple. We, we prefer some of the other FANG stocks, uh, mostly because it's uh, the it's a combination of valuation plus they've all, almost outdone themselves. I mean, the, the iPhone is so good that we're not expecting much from today's launch. I think a few incremental changes, a better camera. So, uh, you know, I, I'm a little afraid that at this lofty valuation of 30 times, that's going to that's going to disappoint. Can we get to the story over at Amazon, Chris, is that a stock you hold? It is. Can you tell me why sure. in a world where they might have to pay up a lot more for labor? This is a big employer in America now. Sure. Well, Jonathan, there are, are so many ways to win. I, I mean, clearly this is old news, but but just point to uh, AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, where they created uh, you know a multi-billion-dollar company out of nothing, and that that we estimate is now worth about four hundred billion dollars. So there's that. There's Prime. Um, there's the international growth. So sure. Just like every other corporation in America, they're going to have to pay more for labor. That doesn't uh, mess up our investment thesis. Maybe it cuts the margin a percent or two. But I think long term, I'm, I'm pleased to be a holder of Amazon. 
Chris, you've been a bull and you've been an unapologetic bull and you're saying that all of the pessimists right now want to sound smart. Uh, however, that has not been a good way to make money. When you talk about making money, why do you like Boeing? Why do you like some of the outliers that frankly sure. continue to be souring uh, in many people's views? Sure. Well, as, as Tom always teases me, you know, I'm a contrarian. So it's very hard. Uh, buying stocks today is like going to the produce department in the market at six o'clock at night. Everything is picked over. It's really hard to find something good. So Boeing has a lot of hair on it, but believe me, it's Sasquatch basically. But if you look three to five years out from now, when COVID is a grim memory, where uh, the middle class all over the world is looking for more airline seats, and there's only two companies that can satisfy them, I, I think Boeing, which is selling for half the price it was two years ago, is one of the few attractive things in the market today. Well, let's talk about Boeing. Is it a cyclical? You know, it didn't used to be, Tom. It's funny. If you do a regression analysis, and you, you'll love this, you're a stat guy. If you do a regression analysis against Boeing, in the last two years, it correlates very closely with the airlines. But for the five or six years before that, it does not. And in other words, in good times, when we don't have a worldwide pandemic, Boeing's not a cyclical. It's a worldwide, it's a world-leading manufacturing company that has terrific margins and terrific returns on equity. So uh, it is. It, I think it's a chance to buy a great company that's being labeled today as a cyclical. Taking a step back, Chris, when you talk about being a bull in this environment, it really does come down to relative valuations in addition to a fundamental story. But how comparable is the relative value story at a time when people think that bond yields are going to go up at a time when, frankly, uh, there is so much economic uncertainty and such varying views on the path of inflation going forward? Well, you know, uh, Lisa, I think it's somewhat ironic that people seem more scared now than they were nine months ago, even though the market nine months ago was selling at 27 times forward earnings and now is at 21 times. I'm, I'm not making an argument that that's cheap, but I am making an argument that it's cheaper now than it was nine months ago because of strong earnings growth. And I, I think that trend over the next six to 12 months will continue. There's a lot of cross currents, uh, inflation being the number one one that I'm afraid of, but more next year than this. Uh, um, you know, in the Delta variant and uh, the, the crummy August jobs report. But, you know, those are the things that create opportunities. So, there was some faith uh, back then, though, Chris, as you favor, know, that we would, really we'd grow into multiples, and, Chris. And, inflation. and we've grown into sorry, multiples, John. as you indicate. Earnings have grown yeah. really quickly. Do you think there could be a threat to multiples, though, in a world where the Federal Reserve might be forced to pull back a little bit earlier than anticipated? In that world, yes, but I don't think we're living in that world, Jonathan. I, I, I think we, the Fed again and again and again has said, um, you know, damn the torpedo full speed ahead. They don't care about 5% inflation, at least not right now. Their sole goal is to get us out of the COVID pandemic. And look, next year is, is a different world, and I don't I don't doubt that we're, you and I are going to be sitting here talking about wage inflation and other things. But the backdrop right now is a Fed that has the pedal to the metal and, and you know, inflation is down the list of worries. Chris, got to leave you there. Smart as always. Good to catch up with you, sir. Chris Crisanti there of MAI, Capital Equity Strategist and Senior Portfolio Manager. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. 
I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.